0: We're going to read this afternoon from the last portion of the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter. And this text will serve to introduce our study for the afternoon. This is Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This afternoon, for a little while, I want to talk to you about why a person should live the very best Christian life he or she can possibly live. But before we study from the Word of God together, we're going to pray at this time. The gospel is presented to us in scripture through four movements or with four pillars. It begins with the history of Israel, God calling Abraham and forming that great nation, delivering them through the Exodus by the hand of Moses and by his outstretched arm, bringing them to Sinai where he made a covenant with them, gave them the law, gave them the tabernacle, and then gave them rest in the promised land. It's about the monarchy, the Davidic line in particular, the prophets, and the hope that Israel would be delivered and restored, that God was at work in the world, and that one day God was going to break into our world to do something incredible, to rescue us from sin and death, and to undo all of the consequences of sin that came into the world as a result of the fall. The gospel reaches its pinnacle with the advent of Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his deeds, his miracles, and ultimately his death resurrection and his ascension into glory on the third day uh, after the resurrection and his ascension into glory 40 days later. Uh, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the father. He reigns as king of kings and lord of lords and he invites all who are willing to come and to be part of his messianic reign. The plan of salvation is the way that that is accomplished. You and I can follow uh, the good news of Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, confessing our allegiance to King Jesus, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, and taking our place in Christ. And those who are in Christ, the Bible says, are part of the kingdom of God. Heaven come down to earth the people of God bound together by the blood of Christ all around the world who proclaim the name of the Lord, who fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of God. That's what it means to be in the church, to be a part of the heavenly kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, being in the kingdom of God also includes some behavioral expectations. We read a passage from Galatians 5, That is sort of a typical passage in the epistles of Paul, where the apostle lists and enumerates a number of sins which Christians are to avoid and virtues which Christians are to put on. That is, Paul says that there are some things which are condemned and some things which are commended. And Paul, in this passage and in other places, tells Christians, here are the things that you need to do, things that are in keeping with life in the kingdom of God. Now, when I read passages like Galatians 5, 19 through 26, sometimes I think to myself, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds sounds like a lot to do. Uh, to put envy out of my life entirely, malice, hatred, to put evil speaking out of my life entirely, to try to grow in the way that I love other people, in the life of peace and patience that I am to put forth, the self-control that I am to have, it really sounds like a lot of work. What is the the reason for me to do all this? Why is it that I should put in all of the effort to do these things which the apostles have told me to do? Now, sometimes the answer to this question is, well, if you don't do it, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. Now, I want to be really clear about this. The Bible certainly and powerfully teaches that Jesus is going to return to this world one day and he is going to judge the world on the final day. You can see Acts 17:31, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Jesus taught about judgment in places like Matthew 25, where he gave three judgment parables that were all primarily aimed at his disciples, who will be wise, who will be foolish, who will be hardworking, who will be lazy, who will tend for their brethren, that's the sheep on the right hand, and who will neglect their brethren, that's the goats on the left hand. However, judgment and the threat of hell is almost never, ever used in the New Testament letters to motivate Christians to do things. From Romans to Revelation, these books in our New Testament that were written to ancient Christians, almost never does an apostle ever say, I want you to do this or quit doing that. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell. It's just not there. So then the question becomes, well, what is my motivation? What was it that the apostles said when they needed to motivate ancient Christians to get them to quit doing certain things that they used to do, especially back when they were pagans? and to start doing other things that are now in keeping with life in the kingdom of God. How did the apostles motivate Christians to live more righteous, more upright, more dedicated lives in the Lord? That's the question I wanna answer with you this afternoon. We're not talking about why should someone become a Christian, that was this morning. This afternoon is, why should I put in the effort to be the very best Christian I can possibly be? And to try to answer this, we're gonna look at three case studies. Romans, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. And we're going to notice in all three of these books a theme that you'll find, I believe, it, I can confidently say, in every New Testament epistle about how the apostles encouraged and motivated Christians to live a godly and righteous life. So let's start with Romans. Now, these are all the scriptures we're going to read right here. I put them up in advance so that if you're taking notes or you want to stay ahead of me so that you're always with me when I turn to a passage, that's what I did here for you, okay? So we're going to start in the book of Romans and we're going to start. With a reading from the third chapter. Now, I said this morning that Romans is the Apostle Paul's most thorough treatise on the gospel. He begins in chapter one by painting a picture of why the gospel was necessary in the first place. He says the gospel was necessary because all the Gentile world, even though they could discern that there was a great and powerful creator God, had turned their back on the Lord and they worshiped idols. They worshiped created things instead of the creator. In chapter 2, Paul says the Jews were no better. They had advantages, they had the covenant, they had the Torah to guide them, and they rejected that, and now they are estranged from God. So Gentiles and Jews are all under sin. He concludes in Romans 3.14, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then, when he gets to this paragraph here, at the end of Romans 3, he begins to pivot from why the gospel was needed to what the gospel is and what the benefits of the gospel are. So let's read this passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Sometimes I'll be reading from the New King James. Sometimes I have a few other versions here in my notes. So just try to stick with me here. Romans 3, beginning in verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But... All are justified, that is made right with God, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. So Paul says the entire world is under the condemnation of sin, but the gospel has revealed to us that there is an escape from all of the consequences of sin in Christ. God set Christ forth as the answer, the ultimate solution to the problem of sin in the world. And by his sacrifice, we can be justified, made right with God through our faith. Now, from this point onward, Paul goes chapter by chapter to talk about all of the blessings that have come into the world because of the gospel, because of Christ. He says, uh, we're not under condemnation anymore. We're not under the threat of death anymore. He says, we're free from the bondage of sin. We're freed from the the burden of the old law. We have the Holy Spirit helping us along the way. When he gets to chapter 9, he starts to talk about how God was working with both the Jews and the Gentiles. He says the Gentiles are like a branch that God just sort of stuck into the tree. And now the Gentiles and the Jews are growing together in a beautiful monarch, a beautiful tree dedicated to the Lord. And when he gets here, to the end of chapter 11, after he has gone through all of this exhaustive presenting of the gospel, he concludes with this outburst of praise, this doxology at the end of chapter 11. Now, we have a chapter break here. You notice, we're gonna go into chapter 12. Verse, uh, chapters and verses were added later. You know, they're helpful. Because I can write a bunch of gobbledygook up here on the board. You know exactly what you're supposed to do by opening your Bible to a certain spot. But sometimes they do us a disservice. Okay? So, we're going to start in chapter 11, 33 and just keep reading. Keep reading. Here we go. Paul says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him God and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you therefore brethren. Okay, pause. Paul gets here to the end of his gospel presentation. And the only thing that's left to do is to praise God for what he's accomplished. He says, who could have thought this up? Oh, the wisdom and power of God. Who else but God could have devised a plan like this? Who else but God could have rescued us in such an an amazing and wonderful way? Who else but God? And so he gives God all praise and honor and glory for the gospel. And immediately then he rolls into chapter 12 and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that is in view of everything God has done for you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, starting from this point through pretty much the end of the letter, Everything Paul will discuss has to do with issues of practical Christian living. Things like submitting to the government, how to handle disagreements about liberties among the body of believers, things like that. Paul makes this transition from the theology of the gospel to the practical section of the book basically by saying this. In view of what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. The only thing that's left to do is to say, Lord, here's my body. Use me. That's what a living sacrifice is. You know, we should be thankful we're not under the old system. Back then, a sacrifice was a dead sacrifice. It was something that was laid on the altar and burnt up before the Lord. Paul says, in view of what God has done, by the mercies of God, he says, I beg you, I beseech you, give your body to the Lord. Dedicate yourself entirely to his service. What else is there to do? What other thing could be reasonable than to recognize what God has accomplished through Christ in the gospel? And to say, Lord, I give it all to you. That's how Paul motivates the Romans to live the way he wants them to live. Now let's go to Ephesians and we're going to see something kind of similar. In Romans, Paul explains the gospel. In Ephesians... Paul focuses on one particular area of the gospel that was a great mystery in the ancient world. And the mystery was, how is God going to bring the Jews and Gentiles together? How is he going to do it? How is God going to take these groups, one of which has been steeped in paganism and idolatry for thousands of years, The other was the covenant people of God, but they had so often rebelled and abandoned the Lord. They're so different. There's so many things that are different about them. How is God going to take these disparate groups and bring them all together? That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. And the main thesis of Ephesians is right here in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul says this, Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul says the answer is the church. The answer is the church. It is in the church. Where people of all kinds of backgrounds, who've lived all kinds of lives previous to this time, people of all different stripes, can come together in one body, united, not by common interest, necessarily. Not because we all have the same hobbies, or we all have the same socioeconomic status. No, because we all are recipients of the benefits of Christ Jesus. Because we have all been redeemed by the same blood, the blood of Christ. Because we stand on this side of the cross and bask in the glory of the gospel. That's what binds us together and that is in the church. And Paul says when people see what happens in the church, the principalities, the powers, when they see what happens in the church, they magnify God. The manifold wisdom of God. Who could have devised it but the Lord. Now, When you get to the end of chapter three, it's just like the end of chapter 11, the book of Romans. We've got a little chapter break here, okay? Paul moves from the theology section into the section that governs practical issues. Look at what he does. Ephesians three ends with a prayer, okay? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, just like at the end of chapter 11, before he transitions, Paul pauses for a bit of praise. And he says something quite remarkable about God. He says, God is able to do for us more than we ask or imagine. I have a pretty good imagination, I think. I can imagine a lot. Paul says God does more. Not only does God do more, but the power of God that can do more than you can even imagine, Paul says it's already at work in the church. It is already working within us. It is already working for us. So this great power of God that's able to do so much, that reveals the might of God, that reveals the glory of God in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, Paul says, this is why we praise the Lord. And I love when he comes into chapter four here, he just sort of slides in. Oh, by the way, remember, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner because of this. And as a prisoner of the Lord, he says, I urge you, To live a life that is worthy of your calling. Now, I've got to admit that I don't know what that means, honestly. What does it mean to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? What What could it possibly mean to live a life that is worthy of everything God has done for us? I guess the baseline assumption here from Paul is... He knows that we're going to fall short, but because we're with Jesus, that's okay. We're still worthy. God still sees us as worthy because we're with the Lord. But it is a remarkable thing for the apostle to get to the end of this chapter and to segue into chapter four and to say, in view of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, in view of what God has done and is continuing to do in the church, live a life that is worthy of of the calling you have received. That is a remarkable statement. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now with that, Paul begins the practical instructions in the book of Ephesians. But I wanna focus on one of them here at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. We're not gonna read this. This is a parallel in Colossians three. But when Paul gets to the end of chapter four, he's giving all kinds of instructions about moral conduct. He's telling the Christians at Ephesus, you need to quit doing this stuff. You need to quit doing this other stuff. You need to start doing this thing and start doing this thing. And look at how he frames the argument here. This is one of Paul's favorite techniques in Ephesians four, beginning in verse 32. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as In Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave up for us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's structure here, and he does it again in Colossians 3, Is hey, do you remember when God did this thing for you? Remember when God forgave you of your sins? Do you remember that? Go out and do that for others. Do you you remember when Christ loved you? Do you remember that? Go out and do that for others. And so in Romans and Ephesians, Both cases. The way Paul motivates people to live the very best Christian life they can is to remind them of who they are and of what God has done for them. To remind them, to put into their memory the incredible work God has accomplished on their behalf. And to say, listen, the only thing to do now is to go live it. And this is how you do that. Now, we've got one more. I didn't want you to think this was only Paul. So I want to look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. It's a great chapter. It's all about salvation. And particularly, it's about salvation that gets us through difficult trials. We don't know a lot of the details of what was going on in the community that originally received this letter, but they were having some hard times. They were uh, being ostracized from their society. Uh, They were getting some pressure, maybe some persecution. Uh, Maybe they were getting roughed up a little bit. People were mocking them and making fun of their faith in Christ. So Peter writes this letter to them to say, you've got salvation. And salvation will get you through all of these difficult trials. Salvation will bring you to the other side of the hardships of life. And when you get to the other side, James says the same thing, you'll be better for it. You'll have patience and endurance. And each time you move through a trial, you become more resolved and ready for the next one. So he's talking about salvation. Now, verse 10, 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation that he's been writing about the first nine verses, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Pause. Peter says this great salvation that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is preserved up in heaven, this salvation that is able to get you through all of the difficult trials of life, this is the same salvation that the prophets for hundreds of years were trying to figure out. And the prophets were given by the Holy Spirit these little snippets, just these little bites, these little pieces. And so Isaiah could write a little bit here, and Daniel could write a little bit here, and Haggai could write a little bit here, and they were just given their little snippet. And as more and more was being written, and as time progressed further and further, the prophets were looking at each other's work, and they were trying to discern what God was doing in the world. How was he gonna bring it all together? How was he going to accomplish the great salvation he promised from the beginning? Even the angels were wondering. Even the angels, were, even the angels wanted to know how it was going to come together. And then Peter says this, therefore, watch out for your therefores, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Now that's it. That's it. Remember, remember who you are. Remember what God, with your mind in check, now that you've been reminded of these things, your minds are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as coming. There's a goal in mind. There's an end. As obedient children, Peter says, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Peter says you gotta get this right first. Get your mind focused. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done. And then he says this. As obedient children, As children who love and respect their father. As children who recognize all that their father has done for them. As children who say, I want to be just like my dad when I grow up. You want to be just like your dad when you grow up? Be holy. Be holy. Because he's holy. That's the father we serve. Be holy. Because he's holy. I've got one more. You've been very patient. I know I've got Titus over here under 1 Peter. That's not because Peter wrote Titus. This is Paul. But Titus 2 is very similar to 1 Peter 1. So I put them together. Titus two is maybe my favorite example of what we're talking about this afternoon. The earliest controversy in the we'll call infant church was the issue of Judaizing. See the old Jews who lived in the days of Jesus; they had developed this system that they thought kept them separated from their pagan neighbors and mark them out as the people of God. This system emphasized circumcision. It emphasized Sabbath observance. It emphasized kosher eating and observance of the holy days. And the Pharisaic Jews thought, if we really keep these and we keep them perfectly, it will make it clear that we are distinct from all of our Gentile neighbors and that we and we alone are the chosen people of God. Now along came Jesus, the Messiah. And many of the Jews who were raised in that system began following Jesus, but they never really put that system away. They just kept on doing all of these things, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher eating, and then followed Jesus as their Messiah. One day, however, a rabble-rouser by the name of Paul came along, and he decided to take a trip up to Galatia, And start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles. And what he told the Gentiles, we highlighted it in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. That was the first sermon that Paul preached on the first missionary journey. What he started preaching to Gentiles was that everyone can be justified in the sight of God by faith. And he didn't tell them about circumcision or kosher eating. Or Sabbath observance. Because these are not part of the system that Christ brought. Well, Paul went back down to Palestine and he got in big trouble. Because all of those Jewish Christians down there in Jerusalem thought that Paul was teaching lawlessness. They thought that Paul was going around the Gentile world and teaching these Gentiles, doesn't matter what you do, you can do whatever you want to do. As long as you believe in Jesus, that's the only thing that matters, and you can live however you want to live. That's what they thought Paul was teaching, because he wasn't teaching circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher eating. Titus 2 is one of the times Paul responds to the accusation that he was teaching lawlessness. Listen to what Paul says about the gospel in Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That is the message of the gospel. It's the grace of God. It is a gift from the Lord and it offers salvation to everyone. Paul told Abraham, in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham long ago. So the grace of God has appeared that offers to salvation to all people. It teaches us, that is the gospel, it teaches us to, some versions say, deny. This version says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Ungodliness. The gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul says that God's grace is for all and all can be saved because of Christ. And the gospel teaches us that when we come to Christ, we are saying no to all that the world has to offer. We are saying no to sin and no to unrighteousness and no to all that opposes God. We are saying yes to the Lord Jesus because it's Jesus who came and gave himself for us. It's Jesus who died that he could set us apart, that he could make us a people, that he could purify for himself his own special people. And at the end of verse 14, what does Paul say about that special people? He says they're eager to do what is good. It's a real shame that sometimes we feel like we have to use the threat of hell to motivate Christians to do what's good. That is really sad. Paul says that when we really and truly understand and comprehend the gospel, the only reasonable thing left to do is to be the first person in line saying, I'm ready to do what's good. What is it? What is it? What do I need to be doing that I'm not doing right now? What's the good thing that I can be a part of right now that needs to be done in this congregation or in this community or in my own personal life? Eager to do what is good? You know, sometimes, and I'm sure that the brethren here, Uncle Frank, you've had this difficulty before. Sometimes you're studying the Bible with someone and maybe you're teaching them something that uh, they're not doing. You're trying to encourage and motivate them to start doing something or to quit doing something. Maybe they're living in sin and uh, they need to be taught that they need to quit doing that or whatever the issue is. And you, you, sometimes you get this response from people they'll say, okay, but is this a salvation issue? Is this a salvation issue? Of course, the implication from that is, I hear what you're saying, but if I ignore what you're saying, am I gonna be lost and go to hell because of it? Boy, boy, that's a bad way of thinking. If it's in the Bible, it doesn't matter if you think it's a salvation issue or not. It's a Jesus issue. If it's there, it's important. And it's there for a reason. And we don't get to open up this book and decide which are the things that we think are important and which are the things we think, well, is that really a salvation issue? That's not how the apostles thought about stuff. The apostles said, Jesus made us a people eager to do what's good. So if we can show someone from the scripture what is the good thing they should be doing, we should be saying, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'll do it. It might take some work, some effort, might be hard for a while, but I'm willing to give it a try. Because Jesus purified me for this work. To be a Christian. And to be the very best Christian I can be. Why should we live the Christian life? Because God is God. Christ is King. And he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Because God's done everything for us. And our response should be to do whatever we possibly can for him to the very best of our ability. That's why. That's why. So maybe you're here this afternoon and you're ready to do that. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that means you are not benefiting from the work that Christ came and accomplished. We want to help you change that. This time in our service is for you. So while we sing the song, if you have a spiritual need, you come forward, you let us know what we can do for you. And we'll do all we can to help you as we stand now and as we sing together. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at...